Hi, this is Esti, host of the Friday A Public Affair. I hope you help us by contributing to WORT and you can also subscribe to the podcast. Bye. Six foot six above sea level I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level Low power frequency radio modulation The big sound from underground another pirate station No change, no change without, without struggle. struggle No one in power ain't giving up nothing No change without struggle No one in power W-O-R-T, 89.9 FM, listener-sponsored community radio, Madison, Wisconsin. And hello, welcome to A Public Affair. I am Esti Dinor. I want to first thank the people who subbed for me in the last two weeks while I was busy fighting dragons. Uh, Christine and Nate, thank you very much for uh, jumping into this seat as was needed I also want to let you know that we are working on finding a guest to talk about the murder of Bruno Pereira and Don Phillips uh, that we heard about on the BBC News just now. We hope to um, be able to talk about about that next week. Today, uh, perhaps our, our motto of um, no change without struggle, no one in power, giving up nothing, is... Uh, very, very uh, potent as we are going to talk about Colombia and uh, what looks like might be really new changes um, after a very long struggle. To um, talk about that with us from Bogota is Andre Gomez Suarez. He is a Colombian writer, international relations scholar, and peacebuilding practitioner. He is senior research fellow at the Center for Religion, Reconciliation, and Peace at the University of Winchester and co-founder of the peace organization Rodemos El Dialogo, Embrace, Embrace Dialogue. He has a PhD in international relations from the University of Sussex. Hello, Andre. Thank you. So good to have you here. Hello, Esti. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm delighted to be here. And, uh, you know, you already let me know that you are feeling optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> and um, you, you have infected me a little bit with the news that you um, shared with me, but let's start with uh, the basics. Uh, Gustavo Petro was um, elected president and his vice president, Francia Marquez. Um, they will take office soon, August 7. Who are they? Why, why is that exciting? Yeah, well, yeah, I'm very excited. You're right. And who, I, who are them? Uh, well, Gustavo Petro is a former guerrilla fighter. He was a member of the M19 guerrilla group created in the 1970s. He signed a peace agreement with the Colombian government in 1990, handed over his weapons, and since then he became a politician. He uh, was member of the Colombian uh, House and then of the Senate. And then he became a mayor of Bogota, the capital of Colombia. And after that, he ran to become a president in 2018 when he lost to Ivan Duque. And then he was elected in, 20, uh, in, in 19 of June 2022. He was a really important uh, member of Congress because he carried out an investigation of what was called in Colombia parapolitics. Uh, that was the creation of illegal armed groups by right wing actors in Colombia who built up ties with the security forces to destroy uh, left-wing uh, leaders, social leaders in Colombia. So he is uh, someone who has never been close to the establishment. He has opposed the Colombian state for many years, and now he is um, he is being uh, running for president. Francia Marquez is a, a Afro-Colombian woman. Uh, she is an environmental activist. She has been, uh, she won in 2018 an environmental prize uh, for her work 
to defend the environment. She then became the president of the National Council for Reconciliation in Colombia. She's been a victim of the armed conflict. She's a single mother. She used to work as a housekeeper in a house. And now for the first time in the history of Colombia, she has become a vice president. So she again shows that someone who has never had the chance to run for such an important office in Colombia now is become the vice president of all Colombians. Mm -hmm. And um, one thing about um, her, besides uh, being Afro-Colombian and and the first um, <clears throat> sorry, African, Afro-Colombian person to uh, be elected to such a high uh, role. I think she may be the first throughout Latin America. Correct me if I'm wrong, but um, that is, I think, is very important. And also, uh, Colombia is um, the country with the highest number of deaths or murders, we should say, of environmental activists. And there she is now, the vice president. The significance of, of these things? It's absolutely significant. Uh, yeah, indeed. Uh, after the signing of the peace agreement between the Colombian government and the FARC in 2016, and in particular since 2018, there have been more than 1,000 social leaders killed in Colombia, most of them environmental activists. So to have someone like Francia Marquez become the vice president of Colombia really, you know, is, is, is a tremendous success for people who have been defending the environment. It's a tremendous recognition that in Colombia, Things are changing and she is one, you know, she just represents what she called in her campaign, the nadies or the no one, you know, and she is one of those people who feel that they have never been counted in politics and now have the possibility to create uh, the ministry of um, to solve inequality and she's going to be leading that ministry and trying to create new opportunities for more than 21 million Colombians who live in conditions of poverty in the country. Yeah, so that, uh, I mean, right there, um, that is exciting. You also shared me, with me really exciting news that have happened in the last um, few minutes. Why don't you share it with our listeners, too? I was expecting to get to it later in the show, but hey, let's go for it. <laughs> yeah, I, I was sharing with you these news that are really important because Gustavo Petro has started naming his cabinet for the last three weeks, but we were really looking, you know, waiting and very expectant with the, finding the name of the Minister of Defense. And this is important because uh, in Colombia, we have a special jurisdiction for peace created in the framework of the peace agreement with the FARC. And one of the cases that this jurisdiction for peace is carrying out is about the involvement of the security forces in extrajudicial killings here in Colombia called false positives. And in the last hearing last week, what we found out was that there were links between paramilitary groups and the, and, and, and the army in, in many regions of Colombia in which these extrajudicial killings were taking place. And some of the officers have started taking responsibilities for that. And so the, min the next Minister of Defense is going to have to face a very serious security sector reform and carry out in order to, you know, respond to the request by victims of Colombia. And for that reason, the Minister of Defense is so important. And President Petro has just a few minutes ago told all Colombians that he has selected Ivan Velasquez Gomez. Ivan Velasquez is a magistrate, is a former magistrate of the Colombian Constitutional Court. He carried out the investigations of the links between paramilitary groups and the army in the context of the justice and peace process in Colombia. And then he was the leader of the commission uh, for um, to fight against corruption in Guatemala, carried out by the United Nations. So he's a fantastic name that is, according to the few people who have been able to tweet in the last few minutes has, you know, it, it offers a light of hope of these important reforms that will take place in the next government. Mm -hmm. And um, you said earlier, or you said just a moment, moment ago that um, 
you as you said we discovered last week that there were connections between the the murderous militias you, the, the, these are not your words but uh, basically um, the um, um, the the those people who killed um, environmental um, activists and, and labor leaders and indigenous leaders that there were connections between them and the military but it's not really news right I mean it's just that um, it has been um, codified shall we say as part of the commission's uh, findings am, am I correct on that because we've been talking about it for years here <laughs> Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, I mean, let's, let's, let's say this. In, in Colombia, um, many organizations, human rights defenders, had been denouncing the links between the army and the security forces and paramilitary groups in the killings of social leaders and leftist politicians since the, I would say, early 1990s. Um, but however these links were only really um, unveiled by an official commission or state organization um, in uh, 2013 when the National Center for Historical Memory, um, that was an institution created uh, in, 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 in 2007, uh, produced a report called Basta Ya, uh, Stop is Enough. And this report really unveiled these links. Now, the problem was that this report could not really go to all the regions of Colombia. So in the context of the, of the peace agreement between the government and the FARC, a truth commission was created in Colombia. And this truth commission was mandated to further research the links between paramilitary groups and the army in the killing of social leaders. And the final report of the Colombian Truth Commission has put this really on the table. And so this is one of the important findings of that report. But I would like to clarify one thing, and is that in the case of the false positive scandals that have been investigated in Colombia, um, there is a difference between the killing of those of the social leaders and the false positive scandals, because social leaders are killed for the activities that they carry out. In the case of, of the false positives, what happened was that innocent people, most of them youth, people who were not engaged in any political activity, were killed by the army in order to dress them up as guerrilla fighters killed in combat to mm. try to show that the military was being effective. But the hearings in the special jurisdiction for peace of last week in Colombia show that some of the people were captured, these civilians, innocent civilians, were captured by paramilitary groups, were taken by paramilitary groups and handed over to the army units in some of the battalions in the north of the country and were the soldiers of the Colombian, of the Colombian state who killed these innocent people and dress them up as guerrilla fighters in this idea of trying to show that they were defeating the enemy that were the insurgencies. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. Okay, um, so maybe it's obvious, but um, basically what that means, and again, this is not news, I think, to anyone who has followed Colombia, but uh, that the paramilitaries are connected to the previous governments of Colombia. And um, the previous governments have all been right-wing to some degree or another. Um, they have all uh, been run by people from the moneyed um, classes, and this is the first time that Colombia has a, a leftist government, and like you mentioned before, a government that includes the so-called nobodies, right? The people who do not come for money. So um, this is big, I think. Um, it is. It yeah. is absolutely big. You're absolutely right. This is the first time in the history of Colombia, 200 years of Republican history, that we have a government that clearly defines itself from the left. So this is the first time that that has happened. In Colombia, 
the, 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 the government has always been uh, in the hands of either the, the, the Liberal Party or the Conservative Party. You know, members of these two traditional parties have been either changing names or, but they have been in, in the presidency over the last 200 years. Now, for the first time in history, someone outside of those two parties is becoming president. That's the first thing. That the second thing that I would like to say is that um, it is the, the, the paramilitary groups uh, were legal in Colombia because the, there was a decree in the 1960s that made them legal. So in Colombia, there was it was legal that some people who were not members of the army could create security groups with arms in order to protect themselves. And then in the 1980s, because they were connected to some of the drug trafficking organizations emerging of the Medellin cartel, they were made illegal. But in the mid-1990s, the Colombian state made them legal again, and they became a really important part of the strategy of private security actors trying to land grab territories from campesinos in Colombia with the excuse that they were trying to fight the FARC, the guerrilla forces. And these paramilitary groups sort of did a demobilization process 40% of them demobilized during the government of Álvaro Uribe, but the links between the security forces, right-wing politicians have continued until now because at, today there are still some of these paramilitary groups operating in different regions in Col of Colombia. And let me finish by saying this, that probably is again a good piece, uh, a piece of good news, and is that yesterday five of these paramilitary groups sent a letter to new president Gustavo Petro telling him that they are willing to offer a ceasefire and that they are willing to offer truth in order to reincorporate into Colombian society to bring about total peace because that they feel that Petro embodies a new beginning in Colombian history and they believe that even though they have been betrayed in the past by the state and manipulated by them in order to carry out violence on behalf of other politicians. Now, President Petro embodies a new beginning and they want to stop carrying out violence by using drug trafficking money and try to create total peace. So just so I'm, I'm sure to understand, are you talking about the paramilitaries or about this, those remaining from the FARC and M19? No, the paramilitaries. Ooh. So, it, it, yeah, it's that is news. really you. You are full of good news today. <laughs> yes, it, it, that's the big news because Gustavo Petro, once he was elected president, in his speech he said that he wanted to bring about total peace, and he said that this total peace meant to do negotiations with the ELN, that is the National Liberation Army, the last insurgency in arms in Colombia. Then he also said that he wanted to find a way for people who join the dissidents of the FARC to come back into civilian life and reincorporate into the, into, into the process of reincorporation of the FARC. And he also said that he wanted to find a solution for the paramilitary groups to bring to come back into civilian life to offer truth to disbandle themselves and to stop carrying out violence against social leaders and against other sectors of society so far the ELN has responded to president petro saying that they are willing to start negotiations with the new government very soon and yesterday the paramilitary groups have said that they have heard what the president has offered and they are also willing to start discussions with the new president to try to find out a way to stop the use in violence and all the criminal activities that they are doing. Okay, well, that's really amazing. But um, I also read that in recent days, uh, and def or definitely since the elections, uh, Mr. Petro has received death threats, which I imagine are from the uh, paramilitaries. Um, talk about that. Yeah, I mean, I guess being in, being a president coming from the left is uh, means that you have lots of enemies, yeah. and and many of these connected to right wing sectors uh, of Colombian society, uh, 
uh, that means probably you know some drug traffickers but not only drug traffickers some sectors of the colombian economic elites who have benefited from it and have sort of sponsored these sort of groups and i guess um, once petro is into power and once he has become the next president this means that some of these actors are really afraid of him and so of course the the death threats will start coming out against him uh, these are early days Petro uh, and probably some sectors within the security forces are really skeptical of what is going to happen to them. And they, you know, then so many dodgy alliances happen in these particular moments. But, but, but I guess in the middle of that, um, Petro is trying to suggest and offer to Colombian society the opportunity of finding a way out to stop political violence. And he has said, and this has taken by surprise many people in Colombia, because he has said that in order to achieve peace in Colombia, we need to work with our enemies. And that he is willing to work with those who were his enemies in the past in order to bring to an end the use of political violence in Colombia. Of course, that's not going to happen overnight, but I think what we have seen in recent days is that multiple actors are starting to think that probably this is a great historical moment in Colombia in which the levels of political violence can start to be reduced to other, you know, to, to, to levels that we saw even in 2017 and 2016. Well, my guest who brings all kinds of uh, good news is Andre Gomez Suarez. He's a Colombian writer, international relations scholar, a peace-building practitioner, senior research fellow at the Center for Religion, Reconciliation and Peace at the University of Winchester, and co-founder of the peace organization Embrace Dialogue. You are welcome to join the conversation, uh, 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also join us on social media, at talk on Twitter, or a public affair on uh, Facebook. So you started, Andre, talking about uh, the drug traffickers and, and the drug um, issue, which is very big in Colombia, um, has um, also been involved in a lot of um, human um, rights um, infractions, um, has been responsible for a lot of murders. Um, again, um, President to be Petro has um, said that um, he, let me see, that the drug trade flourished where urban industry disappeared and unprofitable farming allowed narco-trafficking groups to take over the country. So what, uh, and, and it sounds um, very true to me, but the question is, what solution has, has he offered a solution? Has he offered um, a way to go about um, revitalizing the economy such that um, drug trafficking will uh, stop being the power that it is currently? I think his main, his main proposal really comes from the idea of uh, implementing the peace agreement with the FARC. And let me try to explain why. The peace agreement with the FARC of 2016 had really six points, but point number four was really important because it was about the solution of illicit drugs. Now, this approach had a really comprehensive approach to it. So the whole idea was that they wanted to engage those campesinos, those peasants who were doing coca farming uh, into legal economies. So the idea was you are going to eradicate your own plants, coca plants, and you are going to have new crops so that you can sell those crops into the national legal market. Um, the, the families 
who were working on these coca crops were offered some financial support in order to do the coca crop eradication. Uh, and the idea was that then a new infrastructure was going to be built in the regions. So roads, schools, hospitals, so that these people could feel that the state was there for them and that they were having the benefits for that. And then there was going to be another approach to this that was that um, the, 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 the illegal organizations that were going to try to capture those territories were going to be repelled by a security mechanism in which the communities were also involved. Now, the problem is that this really comprehensive approach to solve the issue of coca crops in Colombia was not taken forward by President Duque. Duque really stopped this. Some of the families never received the money that they were offered to do coca crop eradication. President Duque decided to bring the military into the regions and to started doing force uh, forced coca crop eradication um, even you know and there was some pressure from the u.s government to actually stop coca crops in colombia by using the military so this really created this trust between the coca coca growers and the colombian state because they felt that the state had betrayed them because they had never offered the things that they have said so what president petro is saying is that he is going to go back to the peace agreement of 2016, and he's gonna fully implement this, that he's gonna give the monies to the families who have been doing coca crop eradication, that he's gonna build aqueducts, roads in these regions, that he's gonna talk to the campesinos to see what is the coca crop um, replacement that they can use. But he's also gonna move forward in another really important point that is part of that, that is a global discussion on the importance of the legalization of drugs. And this is something that was discussed in 2016 in the in UNGAS, that was the global conference on the solutions to, to illicit drugs carried out by the United Nations. And that was stopped then because of the arrival of right-wing governments in different countries around the world. So Petro is willing to start again a, a, a regional discussion about the need to have a different approach to the solution of illicit crops that is not only using, you know, air spraying or using the military and security forces, but is actually focusing on the solutions to the needs of the poor people in Colombia who turn to coca crops because it's the best crop in order for them to have an income to feed their families, to send their kids to, to schools and to these sort of things. So he is suggesting these sort of policies. And I think that's also encouraging a new discussion about the drugs, the, the, the issue of drugs in the armed conflict in Colombia. Mm -hmm. and, and that is something that the country's Truth Commission um, recommended um, they the way they put it is they recommended substantial change in drug policy uh, to transition to the regulation of drug markets as as you um, described and um, the commission also placed um, some of the blame on the United States you already mentioned that but um, it also uh, placed some of the blame for the very lengthy civil war on the United States. Talk about um, the role of the United States through the years in um, maybe even fomenting, but definitely um, being part of the various wars that have played Colombia for, for uh, many decades now. Uh, well, to start with, let's, let's say this, that uh, the beginning of the armed conflict with the FARC uh, is, is something that started really because of the role of the U.S. In 1964, uh, like some regions of Colombia where there were some uh, self-defense groups of uh, peasants were uh, suffered an air bombing campaign carried out by a joint operation between the U.S. military and the Colombian army. Um, and out of that air bombing campaign, uh, the FARC was born because these self-defense groups of campesinos uh, survived. And then instead of being 
in their territory, they decided that they were going to uh, take their arms to fight the Colombian state. So they, 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 they mutated from self-defense groups to guerrilla forces with the particular aim of fighting the Colombian state and taking over the, the state in order to do a socialist revolution in Colombia. After that, in the 1980s, many of the paramilitary groups that were created were created in Colombia because of some suggestions of U.S. security intelligence officers or to the Colombian state to actually team up with drug traffickers who had the money, who had the interest to, feed, to, to, to fight the FARC. So the strengthening of paramilitary groups was a perverse alliance between drug traffickers, the security forces in Colombia, politicians by the suggestion of some security intelligence officers of the US who saw in the FARC um, the representation of the communist strategy to take over the world. And this was a way to try to protect Latin America from the spreading of communism, in particular after the Nicaraguan revolution in 1979. And so in the, in, in the, in the, in the, in the 1980s and 1990s, uh, the U.S. also uh, created the idea that the FARC were not only a guerrilla, but a narco-guerrilla group, a, a, a group that did not have any political ideas, but that actually were only fighting a war against the state in order to benefit from the monies of the drug trafficking. And that really permeated the view of some of the Colombian officials, and that made very difficult to carry out negotiations with the FARC between the 1980s and 1990s. Um, and this change of view and this, this, this uh, approach of thinking of them as narco, narco guerrillas, after the war of terror started, in, after the um, uh, attack to the Twin Towers in the US, was even taken further to the point of saying that the FARC were not only narco-guerrillas, but were also narco-terrorist guerrillas. And all of these views coming from the US strengthened the security forces in Colombia, uh, who were carrying out human rights violations, who were killing some of the social leaders in Colombia with the idea that they were defending the Colombian state. And this perpetuated the violence in Colombia over the last few years. There have been you, uh, transnational companies like Chiquita Brands sponsoring directly paramilitary groups in some of the regions of Colombia. And that's another way in which the U.S. has participated in the armed conflict in Colombia. Now, that said, I would like to say that also the U.S. played a really important constructive role, in particular in the peace process between the Colombian government and the FARC between 2012 and 2016. Mm -hmm. I think without the participation of Bernie Aronson, who was the special envoy by the Obama administration to Havana, it would have been impossible to get to a final agreement with the FARC because that was a measure of building trust between the Colombian state, the FARC, and the U.S. administration, no, and, and this really allowed the FARC to see that they did, didn't have to fear the U.S. anymore, that the imperialist power that they always fought was someone who was willing to support a new peace process in which the FARC was going to reincorporate into society and do a structural transformation of the, straight, of the state to the implementation of the peace agreement. But FARC wasn't fully reintegrated into society, right? Um, and, and FARC leaders have been murdered. And uh, it's not, it's, it's a process that has not been completed. And, and you, to some degree, I think you might say that it has been betrayed. So that's one point. But I also would like to ask you before we um, go on to other issues, um, the United States was also responsible to a large degree for the spraying of coca crops and and through that 
um, decimating the lives of campesinos and also the health of um, these things are very toxic and so very bad for people, very bad for the environment if if the two are not the same thing, right? And also I would like you to just um, talk a bit about Plan Colombia and what that, what that was or still is. Yeah, okay, no, you're absolutely right. Um, the militaristic approach to the solution of illicit drugs in Colombia has been sponsored by the by the US and they have promoted the use of glyphosate, this pesticide that is terrible for the environment in order to try to do coca crop uh, eradication. Uh, the Trump administration lobbied quite a lot in order to bring the use of glyphosate back in Colombia, something that has been forbidden by the uh, World Health Organization. Unfortunately, the Colombian Constitutional Court and all the courts in Colombia uh, stopped that from happening. So the Duke administration could not go back to the use of pesticides and air spraying. Um, now, that was connected with Plan Colombia to some extent, because before, in the previous negotiation between the Colombian government and the FARC, between 1998 and 2002, um, the whole idea was to try to get the support of the US to these particular negotiations between President Pastrana and the FARC. But that negotiation failed and failed because both parties, the FARC and the Colombian government, used the negotiations to strengthen themselves militarily. And in the particular case of the Colombian government, what they did was to team up with the US and ask the US to send a packages, a, 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 a financial package to support the modernization of the Colombian army. And this was called Plan Colombia. So the whole idea of Plan Colombia was to transform the Colombian army, which was quite weak in 1998, in the most powerful army in the whole Western Hemisphere. And they invested that money because they thought that by strengthening the Colombian military, they could defeat the FARC militarily, but also they saw it as a strategy to fight a counter, um, a, a counter narcotics war in Colombia. So both things were connected and the monies were used either, you know, to do both things at the same time. Finally, in terms of something that you also said, I think it's important to say that the FARC were very, very skeptical of signing a peace agreement with the Colombian government, in particular because of this precedent that I'm mentioning. But in 2016, they've signed this peace agreement with the Santos administration. Unfortunately, since then, more than 330 members, former combatants of the FARC have been killed. So you are absolutely right that some of them, most of them, feel betrayed by the Colombian state. But the reason why they signed this peace agreement was because in this, in this agreement that had 297 pages, different security mechanisms were created to try to offer protection to their lives. So in particular, a United Nations mission to Colombia was created by the UN Security Council. And the idea was that this UN mission was going to protect the life of, of, of these people. Unfortunately, what we can learn from the case of Colombia is that you can have a really good security mechanism made, you know, supported by the international community. But if you don't have the political will of the Colombian administration, to stop the violence against former combatants, then you won't get anywhere. And the sad part of the story of Colombia is that the, the peace agreement was signed in 2016, and two years later, President Ivan Duque was elected with the idea that he was going to reform the peace agreement. So he campaigned for two years against the peace agreement, and once he got into office, he didn't implement most of the points for the security guarantees of members of the FARC. He continued stigmatizing them. He, con he, he stopped uh, calling the National Commission for Security Guarantees in order to have a strategic plan to protect the lives of these people. And today, four years later, we have this terrible episode of more than 330 people killed who thought that they could hand over their weapons and work for peace in Colombia. But that's the reason why 
the arrival of President Gustavo Petro is so important today because his arrival has as a central point the idea of a new security policy based on the security of not only the former combatants, but security of social leaders, security of indigenous communities, security of people, people-based security, or human-based security, if we want to call it like that. And that's like the greatest reason why so many people are full of hope in Colombia. Mm-hmm. And again, folks, if you want to join the conversation, the time is now, if you call it five minutes to the hour There's a good chance we will not take your call. 608-256-2001, extension 9, um, at Ward Talk on um, Twitter or a public affair on Facebook. So, um, and I, I want to get back to Petro here in a minute, but uh, I just want to ask you about something that I really don't know about. Um, the Gulf clan, who, who are they and uh, what's their part in this evolving story? Uh, they are uh, one of the inheritors of the paramilitary groups. They have another name that they use that is Autodefensas Gaitanistas de Colombia or Colombian Gaitanist Self-Defense Group. Oh, it's AUC? The Gulf Clan is AUC? Oh, okay. Uh, They they used to be AUC, but they are now AGC. And uh, and so when there was this uh, process of uh, coming back into justice, of negotiation process between the Uribe administration and the paramilitary groups, as I said, 40% 40% of these groups uh, demobilize, disarm, and try to reincorporate into society. But 60% of them re- kept their arms and remained working in the regions. So and at the time, they were called the AUC, the Autodefensas Unidas de Colombia. But when they remain in the regions, they changed their name. And some of them, in particular in the north of the country, decided to call themselves Autodefensas Gaitanistas de Colombia or Clan del Golfo. So they are the strongest paramilitary group operating in Colombia at the time. And they, the leader, Otoniel, was extradited to the U.S. Um, I think a month ago, he was captured by the security forces. Mm-hmm. He was extradited to the U.S. And many people in Colombia were very upset because of this extradition, because what they wanted was for him to stay in Colombia, offering truth to the victims and participating in activities of reparations to the victims in different ways and going to the, uh, to the justice in Colombia, to the tribunals in Colombia to offer truth and to, expe- uh, to expose the links that he had with different sectors of Colombian society in those regions. So Clan del Golfo, is at the particular moment the strongest paramilitary group. And the good news that we were commenting before is that they have sent a letter to President Petro saying that they are willing to start a discussion with the new administration in order to hand over their weapons, you know, be, being reincorporated in society, contribute to justice and to truth uh, and reparations to the victims. Okay, so uh, John, who um, didn't want to be on air, but he asked if you're familiar with the book Missionaries by Phil Clay, and if not with the book, I I suppose simply with the role of uh, American missionaries in uh, Colombia. Um, Unfortunately, I don't know the book, and I don't really know much about the role of uh, American missionaries in Colombia. What I can just say probably in in relation to that, is that when the final report, the day of the launch of the final report of the Truth Commission, uh, Father Francisco de Rux, who was the president of the Colombian Truth Commission, was still the president until the end of August, he asked a really important question to all the faith-based organizations in Colombia. And he said, what was our role in the middle of the armed conflict? why Why didn't we do more? to stop what was happening here? Why did we turn the blind eye to this? I think the faith-based organizations in, the, in, in Colombia have played a really positive role in terms of building peace in some cases, 
that also had played a really negative role in sort of turning the blind eye to the wrongdoings of many sectors of Colombian society. And I think we still, and the Truth Commission received many reports of faith-based organizations who were actually trying to be also self-critical of the role that the Catholic Church played in some cases. Uh, but I think, you know, there's this this double role that we always can recognize that these organizations have played in Colombia. Let's think that the ELN, the National Liberation Army, was an organization based on the theology of liberation, and that still now the Catholic Church is trying to play a really important role in facilitating a negotiation between the ELN and the Colombian government. Mm -hmm. Is Colombia mostly a Catholic country? It is indeed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 70% of Colombians are Catholic. Okay. <laughs> um, let's get back then to Petro and, and the, the government to be... Um, I just, as I was um, looking at... Um, What he what he wants to work on, and um, to the degree that we know how he wants to work on, I was thinking about AMLO in Mexico, who also came in with a lot of uh, good ideas and good plans. Also came from the left, and um, he sure hasn't succeeded very much. Definitely not in the war on drugs. Definitely not on the war on gangs. And I I, I don't. I, I'm sorry I'm using these um, terms because I don't believe in warring with these. I'm, I, I believe actually in the kind of stuff that, that Pedro is saying he's going to do. Um, and so I just, um, to quell a little bit your optimism or, you know, to, to challenge it anyway, um, it seems like you think he will succeed. Tell me why. Uh I mean, I think what is important to understand uh, in the case of Colombia is that we also had a congressional elections. And again, for the first time in Colombian history, the leftist coalition was the lar took the largest number of seats in Congress. So Petro is not only becoming the new president from the left, But there has been a renewal of the Colombian con uh, Congress of 60% of their members. And for the first time in the history, in the Republican history of Colombia, we have the majority of new Congress members who, are, who have progressive politics. And the Colombian Congress was, uh, uh, was invested yes, uh, the day before yesterday, this new Congress. And in this new Congress, we also are going to have the representation of the 16 most affected territories of the armed conflict in Colombia. So we have new, 16 new seats. And what we have is a majority of people who are going to push through some of the laws that Petro wants to bring about in order to do the structural transformations that he wants. So he has said that he's going to do during the first year of his administration two really important reforms. The first one, he's going to do a fiscal reform. He wants to collect more than 50 billion Colombian pesos in order to try to offer a, a, a education, free education, universal education uh, for Colombians, and second, a reform to the health system in Colombia. And then the other important reform that he wants to do during the first year is an agrarian reform. Because most of the problem that we have here, and again, the Truth Commission said this in, his re in, in the report, is that more than 8 million hectares were roughed, were land grabbed from campesinos in Colombia. And so we have a very serious issue in terms of the, the land distribution in Colombia, in terms of the infrastructure for the, for the peasants in Colombia to be able to, to be more productive. Uh, we have also a really important problem in terms of the Amazon jungle because there is deforestation happening there because of the coca crops. So the idea of having to do an agrarian reform 
in which we, ha we can have clear what are the regions of Colombia that can be used for agricultural products, for uh, the cattle industry, and what are the regions that need to be protected uh, is really important for the country. And I think that Petro has got the majorities in Congress to do that. And that is going to make sure that his, his program is going to happen at the national level. But he also has the support of the international community. And I think that's the other reason why he's going to be successful. Today, precisely at this very moment that we are talking, President Petro, or the, the President-elect Petro, is meeting with a delegation of the White House. So Juan Gonzalez, the director of security for the Western Hemisphere, is here in Bogota. And this is unprecedented. Few, um, few times the White House has met with the president-elect before he's invested as president. And not only the US, he's been, he's been receiving support from all the Latin American countries, Chile, uh, um, Argentina, Peru, Ecuador, even Venezuela. Petro is willing to try to solve the issue with Venezuela, and he has received support from Spain and all many European countries. So I think this is, in this particular moment, Colombia seems to be a light of hope for the international community, seems to be a place where positive things are happening, and the international community is willing to invest their energies into this. So for the first time in the history of Colombia, I would say, that the good positive energy uh, forces that are taking place inside Colombia are connected with the positive energies of the international community. And those two things probably are going to help the Petro administration to deliver in most of, of his promises. Well, Andre, okay, uh, you have infect infected me with your uh, optimism. I really hope that it all works. I want our listeners to know that Andre will be talking again tomorrow at uh, a Colombia Support Network um, virtual event titled Elections and Truth in Colombia in 2022. Um, I will ask Jade to include the link to register for that when she um, posts the um, today's um, show onto social media. It is tomorrow from 10 to 12 a.m. Um, Central Time, well, 10 a.m. to noon. Um, and, and you can hear more if you um, join that. Um, I, I could talk to you for a couple more hours myself, Andre. If you want to just in a minute, minute and a half to talk about Uh, Petro, in the context of Latin America and the changes, there are several other leftists that have been elected, just as here we're going back to the Middle Ages, it seems like Central America is uh, progressing. So about a minute for that. I think it's, it's, it's fantastic. This is what is happening here is that Colombia, for the first time, is in sync with the region. We saw the arrival of Boric in Chile. We know what's happening in Peru also with Castillo, despite the challenges. We also see what is happening uh, in, in, in Mexico. And it's very likely that something similar will happen in Brazil uh, at the end of this we year. We hope. Oh, do we hope. So yeah. <laughs> for the first time in the history of the region, Colombia, who has been always a stronghold of right-wing politics, uh, is in sync with a democratic transformation coming from the left. And we will see if that brings hope not only to the region, but to the whole world. Andre Gomez Suarez, um, writer, international relations scholar, peace building practitioner. Thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Thank Great you, Esti. Thank you so much. And many greetings to your listeners. Thank you, and thanks to Summer and Jade. I'm STD North. Thank you for listening. Bye bye. We come and listen and support it.